This is AV Week, episode 169, Convenience or Death, recorded November 14th, 2014. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. And welcome to another edition of AV Week, your source for news and information about the industry. I'm your host, George Tucker. Tim Albright is at the CI Summit. We'll speak to him in just a moment. Actually, we'll speak to him now since he came up. Tim, you're at the CI yep. Summit. How are you, sir? I'm well, you know. I'm not in St. Louis, which apparently is snowing there. It's it's nice and warm, and, you know, it's Orlando, so how bad could it be? you got to go back sometime. You do. <laughs> no, I mean, here, here's the thing. The, the TI Summit is uh, is an invitation uh, event uh, put on by, by the guys at, at, at Commercial Integrator, co-located with, with the CE Pro Summit. So, you know, you've got residential guys here, you've got uh, commercial uh, guys and gals here. Uh, and it's it's been a good three days, right? I mean, we've talked about everything from social media to 4K to net, net neutrality, thanks to Josh Ferrero. Uh, but, uh, but it's been a good three days. Well, cool. I mean, what actually goes on at the CI Summit? I mean, who's invited and, and why? That's a good question. And actually, um, as luck would have it, Tom LeBlanc is sitting here next to me, and I'm going to have him answer that very question. Hey, hey what was that question? <laughs> hey, Tom. Hey. Good to see you. Um, so, CI Summit. What exactly is the CI Summit? Tim said you talked about a lot of stuff, but who's invited and, and why are you doing it? Who is invited and why are we doing it? Well, yeah. I have to admit, I didn't hear all of the question, but um, what was great about the CI Summit, I thought, was that we had a, a pretty wide range of uh, generational representation at the show this year, and I thought it was really cool. We had a lot of, uh, you know, sort of the traditional AV guys who, you know, kind of represent um, traditional thinking. And then we had a lot of, you know, younger, you know, Gen Y and Millennial and Gen X guys who really had some good conversations about things like social media and, and IT and, and neutrality. <laughs> so there were a lot of good conversations. And, and, and I think that the AE Ventures crew, which produces the event, did a good job of bringing in a diverse crew, and it added to the conversation. I think it was the best dialogue in one of these events yet. Well, very cool. And net neutrality, which means Mr. Shrago must be there somewhere lurking the halls, so that was must have been a very good event. Oh, there he is. Say hello, everybody. <laughs> hello, everybody. <laughs> well, cool. I, you guys do this how many times now? Is this the first one? There's been a couple this of these. This is the no? third one. Wow. The third annual event. Uh, the first year uh, we had it. Well, you should know first of all that you know, CI launched sort of out of something that um, done on the residential side, the CE Pro 100 slash CE Pro Summit. We launched it three years ago, and the first year we had 55 people. It was kind of like a you know very small group, and a lot of the events took place adjacent to a very large group on the residential side. So you felt sort of an inferiority complex, even though the dialogue was great. It grew last year, and then it grew a lot more this year. And you know, we're starting to starting to develop a really, you know, all fleshed out event. And the difference this year. Well, very cool, very cool. Well, I'm I'm sure there was a couple of shows recorded. And I know the guys were out doing some booths and talking with you about some stuff during the events. We look forward to seeing those uh, and some future posts from the Aviation and from you guys. Uh, again, it's in conjunction with Commercial Integrator, right, and CE Pro. I believe there's a sort of sister show going on right next to it. Yeah, he having AV Nation here was a big um, was a made a big impact on the crowd. What I'm really impressed with is their work ethic. <laughs> <laughs> no, those guys have been great. They added a lot. They're an inspiration. They are. They are. <laughs> All right. Well, I have one other thing I want to ask uh, Tim before we let you guys go and get some sleep and some coffee and whatever libations you're going to ingest. Um, I'll hand you back. Thanks. Thanks, George. All right. Yes, sir. So, Tim, 
talking about trade shows. We've done Cedia, we've done uh, a number of Infocoms, but we have been invited to ISE. Uh-huh. And in order to do ISE, we're asking some people to help out. Can you uh, give us a little update on what's going on with that and how people can help? Yeah, so here's here's the, the thing about that. Um, you know, Infocom and, and Cedia, because everybody here is a... Um, it would, here, meaning aviation, we're all working professionals, right? Um, we all are programmers or installers or what have you. So there's a lot of us that are already naturally going to Infocom or CDU. So either through our companies or through something else. Um, I guess it's different, right? It's, it's halfway across the world. It's in Amsterdam. There's a lot more cost involved in this. Uh, and so, yes, we could have had, you know, a bajillion in, uh, advertisers, which is nothing wrong with advertisers. We like them. They're nice people. Um, but that's not kind of where, where Aviation is. So we're asking folks to help us get to ISE. Uh, actually, Mr. Braithwaite was, was one of the very nice people that, that did just that. Um, there are different levels. You get different things for, for each level. Uh, you know, for, uh, I think, 5 or $10, you get our eternal gratitude, I think it is. Uh, for $25, you get some stickers and a, a, a coffee mug. For 50 you get an ISE uh, 2015 Aviation T-shirt. Um, for more and more and more, uh, there is one level that is is geared towards uh, manufacturers, but I don't want to make it exclusively for that. Uh, and that's a thousand dollars, right? Uh, for that level, you'll get um, a very uh, high level broadcast quality uh, tour of your booth. Um, if you are not a manufacturer and you just want to give us a thousand dollars, then we're going to invite you to an Aviation uh, dinner, uh, and that's going to be either at ISC or, or Infocom or one of the other trade shows. So uh, we started that out on Monday. Um, it's going to cost us about three grand a person to bring. Uh, so we're hoping uh, to get at least ten thousand dollars so we can bring three people, um, take three people to Amsterdam, cover the event uh, in, in the way that Aviation does, and, uh, and um, for every I think over over ten thousand dollars, you know, that just means we can bring more people. Cool. And uh, where can they find information about that? Uh, you can. There's a link on our website, but also if you just go to Kickstarter uh, and search for AV Nation, uh, it'll, 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 it should be one of the only ones that pops up. All right, cool. So we are trying to go to ISE, and I feel like I should be putting on my best national public radio post here. If you like what you hear, like what you see, please help donate. Give a little, give a lot, give just some. We would really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right, Tim, I'm going to let you go. You guys have another okay, day to do, or is today the last day? Today's the last day. Uh, we had some some, uh, some meetings this afternoon, and, and we've got the last. Uh, it's 2 Eastern now, so we've got our last wrap-up session in about 45 minutes. Cool. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank everyone for joining us, and I look forward to seeing the content online. All right, and, and thank you for hosting AV Week for me this week. <laughs> You're more than welcome. All right, sir. See you guys. All right, guys. And again, I'll just do that at the end. We'll, we'll show you a link. It'll be in the show notes. At Kickstarter, help get us to ISE. I promise I won't smoke anything unless you pay me more. <laughs> that that could that could be an option actually. I didn't think of that. That would be an <laughs> all right. So on to the news, guys. Well, let's first start off with an article I found in CE Pro. Z-Wave rediscovered. All right. Well, Z-Wave's been around for a while. CE Pro has done a uh, a little article with Bjorn Jensen of Why Reboot. It's something that a lot of manufacturers have been looking into. They have, in some way or another, tried to emulate it in some of their products. Hope, I'm going to start with you about some of this stuff. Is Z-Wave something we should start seeing in our installations, whether it's commercial or or, uh, residential? Or is there something that's going to prevent us from doing that? Uh, you know, it's it's hard to tell. Um, I'm mostly on the commercial side, so we're not we're not seeing a lot of. Z-Wave type devices that we are trying to control. I'm sure they're seeing a lot more of them on the residential side, but um, you know. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me reframe the question. Do you, are you putting in a lot of wireless controllers and devices for your commercial clients? And, uh, would you, and, and I'll, I'll come up that so to make it clear. Would you be seeing with the BYOD, bring your own device, stuff that's happening. Do you foresee some of these guys saying, well, I put it in my house, why can't it be in my my, in my, my huddle room? 
Well, that's a great question. I mean, right now we, we, uh, we're definitely putting in a lot more iPads. People say, you know, I can control everything from my iPad at home. Why can't I control it in my conference room? I think one of the big limitations you have on the commercial side is we're sort of at the mercy of somebody else's IT department. You know, on a, in a residential install, you can go in and you can, you can set things up and configure them the way you want. Uh, on, the, on the commercial side, you're either having to sort of um, stick everything on a VLAN, you're doing an AVLAN, something where maybe you're not even talking to the internet because you just have to keep it completely segregated, or you're putting everything on the client's network and then you're at the mercy of their security department, you're at the mercy of their IT people. Um, so we, we are starting to do more wireless control and definitely more Ethernet control. It gives you a lot more flexibility, gives you a lot more options. There's a lot of devices that are Ethernet only. You know, a lot, a lot of the, the newer people who are making products are saying, RS-232, what is that? You know, why, why would I want to stick that in there? So I think we are going to see more wireless devices, but the, the big challenge for a commercial integrator is to make sure that you can get it set up on somebody's network and that it'll be stable. It's a fair. It's a fair point, Scott. Uh, I forget if you yeah. do both, or uh, commercial and uh, and residential. What is the main focus yeah. of like? So we do do both. Uh, commercial is our main focus, but we do both. Correct. So I started you, out in residential. So. <laughs> okay. Well, are you seeing a crossover in any sense? I mean, we know we bring in the BYODs. Everyone wants to bring in the iPads. Everyone wants to bring in their Android devices. Are you seeing them now, or your CEOs at least saying, "Hey, it works in my house. Why can't I have the same thing here?" Uh. I would imagine at the conference room scenario, you get a lot of that. Um, we don't do as many of those, but in those circumstances, that's when that comes into play. Um, we do a lot of uh, casino and hotel work and hospital work, so you're also starting to see the idea of something like a mesh network, which what the what the Z-Wave is, being its lower power situation, lower frequency, um, being able to be implemented into an environment like that, um, it, you know, for, for devices that uh, aren't, to Hope's uh, um, point, um, applicable on the overall uh, Wi-Fi network in an, in an area. So there is, I, I do see this becoming a, a thing for sure. Hmm. Michael, I'll throw this to you. You've been on several different sides of this equation, right? You've been at a manufacturer, you've been at an installer, you're at another manufacturer. Is Z-Wave something a market like Clear One or a manufacturer like Clear One is going to look at, or is it going to be a proprietary, and I say that with mixed uh, sentiment, a more secure proprietary transmission scheme? Or is this something viable? I think it's very viable. I think what you will see is that uh, it will be an augmentation to other transports. So uh, where you want to see access control, maybe where you want to see synchronization, like frame locking on a video wall, you'll actually see this be this lower, and because of the lower frequency and the lower noise floor on that frequency, that's why you'll see it in additional products. It won't be like what you see on the residential side, like a, a key lock, but you might see it in access control or even in a microphone. Yeah, now, they made a big point in this article to talk a lot about the Z-Wave, Schlock, and uh, some other, uh, figure the other key manufacturer, or lock manufacturer was, um, that being one of the main selling points. I'm not so sure I see that. Do either uh, or any of you guys have a concern installing that kind of key lock system? Hope, I'll start with you. Would you put it in any of your commercial installations in a wireless lock access? Uh, <laughs> probably not. I mean, we're not we're not doing a lot of locks in our in our systems. We're we're usually working with whatever the um you know the client has existing already. Um, would I put it in my house? Maybe I'd have to I'd have to you know read some up up some more on the specs. I'd have to you know see the security um, protocols. But you know I might put it in my house. Yeah, it's it's an interesting idea that they seem to think they've gained a lot of traction with the lock. That seemed to be their trigger and, and the, the tipping point. They got a lot of people interested in a lot of magazines to cover them, not just in the uh, technical world, but in the, the sort of mass market world. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I mean, all of you have said that Z-Wave with the low power and the, the sort of mesh networking thing seems to be an advantage. We'll see if the market really wants to have that happen for, for a big part. Um, another topic I want to bring up, actually, and something that sort of back ends on this is the Internet of Things. From our friends at Engadget, Belkin and Mr. Coffee want to brew your first pot via Wi-Fi. Hmm. Okay. 
Uh, and what it says here basically is you can set it to do what it's supposed to do and, and goes off when it's supposed to go off and alert you when it's ready, I suppose. Um, this brings up a bigger question of the Internet of Things. Now, Scott, I'm going to start with you. You've done some more residential work. Is this something your clients are looking for? Is that that one added feature that makes them go, gee whiz, I really like what I got my system, or well, what, I guess is what I'm asking. Well, as it relates to a coffee maker, that's probably a different conversation than you know, some other devices. There's a lot of other stuff that go into making a cup of coffee other than turning it on. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, is it automatically going to add my grounds in the water, too? So I don't see a gigantic value in a coffee maker in that respect. Um, but other devices potentially that I think the, the crock pot they had in there probably had more legs than the the, the, the coffee pot. But all in all, it's um, you know I'm making uh, um, jokes because I, I think we are entering the realm of uh, more of a novelty type situation than than uh, a real world viable integration option. Especially because you have to open up a separate app and <laughs> I mean I don't know I don't you well, do. The, the app aside, and Hope, I'm going to turn this to you for a second. The app aside, and regardless of the fact that you do more commercial, is there some viable function that the Internet of Things could offer us, or will it always be just a fad, maybe not as bad as 3D, but is there something that we can make it work and that would be beneficial? Um, yeah, I mean, I think part of it is... is um you know, a Wi-Fi enabled coffee maker is sort of a solution in search of a problem. You know, the, as, as Scott said, you know, the, the problem in the morning for me isn't hitting the button on the coffee maker. Actually, I'm a Luddite when it comes to my coffee. I, I have a French press at home. Um, but, you know, it's not the button. It's the, it's the grounds and it's all the other things. So I think you have to sort of look beyond that device and say, okay, what can I do with it? And, um, you know, as a programmer and you know someone who's an integrator I, I think okay well how how do I fit this into a bigger solution you know what the question is how does this how does this make my life easier if it doesn't make my life easier there's really no there's really no point but you know is there an API can I can I tie something else into it when I when I set my alarm clock at night um, will it change the time on the coffee maker so it'll you know I'll maybe I'll measure out the grounds the night before and then it'll start brewing and it'll be ready when I get up because you know I I need my coffee in the morning so so that part does help. Yes, yes, uh, we all do, and I have uh, I have two young boys and I need my coffee before I wake them up. It's all gangbusters from there. If I'm not go, it's not going to happen. Uh, Michael, you, I want to ask you from both sides as the manufacturer and as someone who's installed stuff in the Versi commercial world. Do you see an application where this Internet of Things would be better and beneficial beyond the already used infrastructures and Ethernet and Internet connections we already have? Well, you know, there is some potential use case where if you talk about notifications or alerts, so if you, in other words, if you, if you have done your grounds and you have done that, but the coffee's ready and so it just alert, is alerting you, you know, on that aspect, there is some uh, some nice applications. Yeah, I guess I'm still not sold on what it would really do. I mean, the ones I've seen are, you know, your fridge tells you you're out of milk or you need more salami in the in the. I don't know. Uh, it just doesn't seem to be something that added on. There's a backbone that really gives me any any kind of added value that's not already there. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm asking you guys to differ, but if not, you know, we'll move on to the next story. Well, potentially, potentially, if it were able to store the grounds and when you got to a point where you were low on those and it was able to order those through Amazon.com and bring your latest ones, uh, you know, already to, there is some convenience aspects to it. I suppose. Well, all right. Well, let's move on to something, something else. Uh, First, listen to the Tidal Hi-Fi Music Streaming Service. All right, I chose this because here we have... Whoops. There we go. Now everybody can see it. We chose this because this is yet another attempt to break the mighty grip of MP3s. Everyone complains about them. No one wants to do anything about them. You have people like, uh, what is it, HD Tracks, who provide downloads at high resolutions. Uh, we now have a streaming service that claims you can get really high-quality AIFF, AF and FLAC and all kinds of different uh, formats for $19.99 a month. So $20 a month, you get 
a really good streaming capability with some downloads. And it's supposed to be better than your, your uh, uh, what are the ones, uh, Pandora and Spotify and maybe equal to, they say, uh, Sonos, which is basically proprietary and you can't get it as a general, a general uh, person. Uh, Scott, I'm going to throw this to you to start off. Is there a market for the high-end streaming? And is that market one that we can use to help sell? Oh, I believe there is a market. There's always been a market for um, audiophile-type situations um, by selling the up upgraded speakers, the upgraded headphones, the upgraded um, um, formats. Um, how big of a market, I, I don't know. I mean, every the everyday uh, uh, person's not going to buy in at $20 a month. Um, so it has to be fairly specified towards that uh, group of people. I, I don't know the viable business option or the business opportunity. I don't know how big that chunk is, but I, th I do think it's a viable option. It is still only CD quality, though. What, what, is it, what is it for us? So as a residential dealer putting in a system, is this an added value feature that you can use to help sell some part of the system to, to, you know, to make it just that much more? Or is it simply you're just going to have it client-driven and, yeah, we can add that, here's a connection, you're done? Uh, content's always important right now, I believe. I mean, uh, content is what it's all about. Um, and so, yeah, that is a viable, um, a potentially a viable selling option. And not that much different than a um, kaleidoscape-type situation on the, on, the, on the movie side, whereas, you know, paying a premium for a higher-level service. Um, on the on the streaming media side or the media side in general, it's uh, it's probably the same situation of the difference between Blu-ray and DVD back uh, back in the day. You can use that to your advantage for sure. Some people will buy into it, some people won't. Well, you know that makes a good point, uh, Michael. You and I have discussed some of the audio stuff in the past, both at conferences, in person, uh, and uh, and on some po uh, different podcasts. One of the things the author of this article goes into things maybe maybe we'll have the final thing that'll make everybody want to go to the higher quality. And as Scott just said, there was the DVD and Blu-ray. There are SACDs still out there that were far superior, and yet they didn't sell, even at the high end. You still have people saying, I want my MP3 player in my control system. Right? Crestron and others put them out, and they had to make them. Mm -hmm. Can we actually raise the bar and raise the boats in the water, as they say, and get people to appreciate higher quality audio with something like this or not what is well I think certainly uh, you can do that the the key is access has trumped quality so in other words if I have access to all the different media types and content and, and all of that and it's easy for me to get it I may not know a reference point I may not know what to look for quality-wise. And most of the younger generation, they may not uh, have a good reference point to look at. If this service is to succeed, it has to have access to as much content and as much availability as possible. Now, if you have the access, absolutely, as people are interested in audio again, and as uh, the lower resolution services have brought the awareness up, okay, because before that people were playing video games or they're doing some other activity, but if you can bring people to understand about music and get into that and they can understand about how higher quality speakers, how better amplifiers, how everything is, then certainly. So the key will be will you have access to a wide variety of content, which is why music some of these other ones have struggled. And if that's the case, it will it can succeed and it will succeed. People uh, look at the headphones, the market in the headphones. People are buying more expensive headphones and so forth. They're still listening to crappy MP3s. That's true, but that's the first step where you get them into a higher quality experience, better drivers, better amplifiers. And so, I believe it can it can and it will happen. I, I want to follow up with you on that for a moment because you say that they're buying more quality headphones, which is true. But then there's the aberration of the highest selling headphones out there, which are the Beats, which we all know if any of us have even had a moment's listen to them, are god-awful. And hopefully that doesn't give me the libel, but they're god-awful. And they're very popular. They're fashionable. They have a good name tag to them. 
and yet we can't get the guys to find equally good headphones or better that are equally as stylish. Okay. It's sort of a quandary. So what you're saying, though, is you're talking about it's a fashion, it's almost a fashion piece. Like, I'm, I'm buying this because it's a status uh, symbol and it's got a gold uh, uh, setting. Okay, but the thing is, once they listen to how terrible those do sound, and someone sitting next to them on the plane has actually a very high quality headset on, they will, now they're, they've already spent $350 to Apple now for this, right? They will buy a high quality use like Sure and others who have very high end headphones that people are more and more people are buying even mainstream. You see it even in Amazon.com. Go look at the high end headphones that they never had before. And probably without the success of Beats and and other garbage headphones like that, we we wouldn't be selling as many of these high end ones. Yeah, I mean it's a fair point. Um Hope, I'm going to bring you into this conversation with the idea of the, the, the punk band, the Dead Kennedys, once had an album called Convenience or Death. And, That's a great album. Yeah, and, yes, thank you. Ah, I knew I liked you for a reason. Um, and, and Michael mentions that um, it's the content that is key, and Sam brought this yep. to it. It's content, 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 and the diverse content, and the ubiquity of getting any content. Um, but are you seeing on your side the race towards getting the convenience content even at the expense of intelligibility, whether it comes to your conferencing tools or just having music and reinforcement for a presentation in a conference room. Yeah. Well, George, if I may, can I can answer sure. to that? Sure, we'll, we'll go from it. Uh, yeah, I'll edit it in. Go ahead. Okay, so from a conferencing point of view, to be honest, if you're talking about intelligibility and fatigue on meetings, it is the most important productivity aspect. So when you're doing a meeting, uh, the the less fatiguing that it is, which is coming primarily from the uh, the audio side. Uh, I mean, meetings will be over if you don't have uh, that intelligibility and and less fatigue. Mm -hmm. Now you say that you say that intelligibility is important, but they don't always seem to quantify it for a long time. You may shout from the spires about it, but it doesn't seem like anyone's really listening to it until they finally go into a meeting of, say, a competitor or an associate's company in which it's so much better, and then they finally see it. Uh, Scott, I'll throw this to you. Is that part of our challenge, is to show our clients some kind of example of why it's important to step up to that level? Well, yeah, sure. To answer your question initially, a lot of that has to do with you don't know what you don't know. And, and and that's the that's the thing with the clients in that in that circumstance of, of not understanding until they're they're in a situation of of um, hearing it right and and not having the fatigue and being able to carry on a meeting. Um, but if you're trying to present that on the upfront, they don't know what they don't know, and they could easily just you know call BS on that. To be honest with you, so yes, education is extremely important, and being able to justify um, the, their need for, to be able to uh, step up into, into the right environment. Hope, we have you back. Are you there? Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yes, very well. Good. So I'll, I'll throw this to you. Uh, Scott talked about, and, and Michael talked about, the, raising the higher quality for that sort of corporate install is really essential because, as Michael said, it actually puts a strain on people listening in the meetings and makes those meetings much more arduous if we don't have intelligibility and good video. How do we combat it? How do you combat that desire for a consumer-based device or something that's, oh, we don't need that many speakers because two in the front are just fine in a, you know, 20,000 square foot room, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, some of it is, is that clients sort of expect that you'll be a miracle worker. And so they say, we love this tin ceiling. It looks awesome. And you're like, well, that's why your boardroom sounds terrible. Um, you know, we can put some great products in and we can engineer the, you know, out of it. But you, you know, at the, at the end of the day, it's, it's how your room is set up. It's how, it's how your infrastructure is set up. Um, and I think we've been very lucky in, in our, um, with most of our clients that, that they understand and that they trust us. I think a lot of it is having trust 
um, with your clients that that they understand that you're going, you're not you're not just telling them to do things to to make your life easier or to sell them more product, but that you know you say, look, if we only put two mics in there, it's going to sound terrible. Um, if you know if we don't do something about that ceiling, we're never going to be able to engineer a good solution out of it. And let me follow it up on a related sort of idea. You're a mother. You have a a, a lovely <laughs> child. How are you trying to instill in her an understanding of the quality? Now, I know she's very young, under <laughs> seven and eight, right? Uh, but she's I try very hard. Okay, under <laughs> seven and eight, and I still try very hard to show them that the convenience is not nearly as exciting as listening to something really good. But it's yeah. a hard fight. How are oh, you yeah. planning to do that? Well, that is that's definitely a hard fight, and actually, I think she sort of epitomizes the 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 fight over streaming streaming music this week, where you know Taylor Swift kind of threw a fit and pulled her stuff off of Spotify, and I'm like, I'm not buying your CD because you know digital music is where it's at, and you can't make me buy your CD just by pulling something. But you know, at the same time, I have a two-year-old in the back seat yelling, "Shake it off! Shake it off! Shake it off!" And some of it is just uh, that you try and show her some other music. Um, and you try and show her that you know Taylor Swift is not the only option out there. <laughs> Although I will um, say that I uh, I'm very impressed by her because she owns her music and she was able to do it, and that takes some moxie and some understanding. Yeah. But, no, and 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 as a as an actual musician, then I I do agree because I think I've made about 30 cents from streaming downloads, <laughs> and I've made a lot more money selling CDs, even though you know that's not really where the future's at. Mm. Uh, Scott, I'm going to throw this to you as well because I know you have. Uh, some some fine young men who have their own opinions about many things. They're at that age. Very much so. Yeah. <laughs> How are you combating it? Are they listening to something quality, or are they just ripping it off? No, it, it comes down to convenience, but it also comes down to uh, a personality. And when you when you're talking in my gaggle, um, they all want to be uh, personal into themselves, and uh, um, you know, putting the headphones on is the, the way it, it uh, the way it is nowadays. Even no matter where they are car, on a street, um, anywhere other than school, they have the headphones on. Um, so even though we have the system in the house and, and, and nice stuff and, and they have a choice, uh, they, they tend to still go for the uh, uh, headphones for, more for their own personal space than, than for anything. So trying to convince them um, about quality that while they understand it, they might not care. <laughs> Do they at least have quality headphones, or are they buying like the Skull Candies and the Beats? No, I go through. I, if they had a subscription somewhere for for headphones, uh, where you can get uh, you know delivered to your house ten free or ten a, a month, and it, 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 that would that would work for me. That would that would work. Yeah, I'm going through that as well. Yes, I, I once bought them a, a what I thought was decent quality for the money for their age group Skull Candies, and they've run right through them. And, right, uh, but I also have dogs, so that joins. Uh, well, yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right, one more other story that we want to talk about. Since we're talking about quality, this one came across my my uh, stream a couple of days ago. Walmart Chrome knockoff. Yes, folks, Walmart is a, evidently, now they're not admitting to it, but someone found a little filing uh, with the FCC about creating a Voodoo Spark Chromecast <laughs> knockoff. And here's the big part of it, guys. It's only going to have Voodoo. Just voodoo. Now, That's the point. Exactly. Now, Hope, since you chimed in, I'm going to start with you. Um, right. We talked about having the plethora of options, but is there anything to be said for having a single option? I'm going to put it out there, your 85-year-old grandmother or mother. Yeah. You know, for my grandmother actually has a, has a TiVo, and um, I think we set her up with a Roku and a Harmony remote, so she's pretty, she's pretty ahead of the time when it comes to this stuff. But, um, you know, the problem I have in my house is that there's not one device for everything, and, and some of that is because the manufacturers, uh, you know, are fighting with each other, and, you know, Apple doesn't want to support Amazon, Amazon doesn't want to support Apple, you know, Netflix just wants to be everyone's best friend, and um, so you you end up with you know 12 different things hooked up to your TV, and you're like, okay, how do I how do I just want to watch a movie? You know, what do I plug it in? So if everybody had their own device and they were 20 bucks each, maybe that might be a good option instead of having six different things. And 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 you know, my my dad's at the house watching my daughter, and he's like, I just want to watch Orange Is the New Black. Like, what do I hit on your TV? I don't understand. Um, so. 
from if there's not going to be one device to rule them all, I, I'd like to have maybe an a la carte option. But the you know Voodoo's on everything, so I don't think that's the solution. Right, and uh, Michael, I'm going to throw this to you because from a manufacturer standpoint, offering that plethora of options, whether it's content or control or interfaces, it's actually a level of complexity that is mind-boggling. Is there something to be said for a one-shot solution? And where is that solution appropriate? Well, it's it's a fine line that you walk on that side because as uh, uh, you know was brought up, um, all of a sudden you have 20 uh, HDMI sticks that you need to uh, plug into your into your display. It's part of a disturbing trend that's going on right now, and that is they use the um, EDID and CEC information that they get from the HDMI as well. So you look at the uh, uh, Sony's player, their new 4K player only plays with Sony devices. Mm -hmm. So what happens is when you're integrating and you're, you're putting in one of those and you don't have a Sony display, you now need one of those EDID minder devices to kind of spoof the Sony E did so that the Sony 4K dis, uh, player will output because if it doesn't get the Sony E did information, it won't output. And um, this starts to become a very weird beta VHS war again. You know, when, as you're going through that. And and that's the part of the question I'm really really struggling with lately. Is technology innovation is great. But why can't we have the manufacturers finally learn, hey, we all came out with something at the same time. Let's make this work for everybody's benefit. It seems that there's so much greed in grabbing all of the pie rather than getting a slice and figuring out how to make the most of that slice. Uh, Scott, I'm going to throw this to you. Do you is, it, is it a dizzying effect of trying to sell to your clients an option? This is what you can do or this is what you can't do or having to interface to all of them. Is there a downside to saying, I want a utopian one-shot does it all and gets me what I need? I, I don't know what the viability is of that just because, in the, you know, there is a business proposition in there for Walmart who does own Voodoo. And that's like why why wouldn't they put a single, their, their own app on the stick? Um, you know, it's actually somewhat brilliant from the business perspective. From the integrator side, it, I, I'm on the same side of the fence that you are, which is it, you just now have another device. You, you know, you, as a developer, you look into my house, and I probably have seven boxes available to my wife and kids to do the same apps um, that I happen to have in there for the reason of I need to have it all. Um, but I get the constant complaint every day on where do I find my orange is the next black to, to your consideration there can get it from literally six different locations um, so that becomes uh, on the extreme the other way and I don't think that's that's uh, that far from the truth even in everyday situation where it's in your TV it's in your DVD player and you still have an Apple TV or a Chromecast or a Roku or one of those devices now you have it on just by the nature of the beast you now have it on three devices and have access to the Netflix and the, and, and all of your uh, um, your data now. So when it first started out, you know, we were always saying, why are we not building a box? Why why is there not a box available for us to be able to bring in these um, streaming um, the streaming content? Now it is available everywhere, but to answer your answer your point, um, now it's too prolific. So I don't know. If, you know, George and Scott, there's one uh, interesting caveat with all this, okay? Uh, if you have a Voodoo account, right, in your Voodoo account, you're only allowed five uh, devices. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have a stick and if you have uh, uh, several TVs that take those different devices, plus you maybe you have it on your iPhone, maybe you have it on a tablet, maybe you have it on PC you run out of those instances very fast. In mm -hmm. fact, on my body right now, I have five devices. I could all do voodoo right now. So I'm already in violation of Walmart's policy. Go admit that on air. Go ahead. Nice job. <laughs> well, all right, let's move on to some of the higher technology. Uh, this came across the BBC with me, and I'm sharing it now. There we go. 
TV technology for the 2020 Olympics. NHK, that's the broadcasting company in Japan, is planning for coverage of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Uh, you're not seeing the video playing for some specific reason here, but there you go. Uh, what the article talks about, though, is going with 8K and 16K and broadcasting this out to the world. Uh, they have all kinds of really cool stuff in here. Uh, cameras that do 124 frames per second real-time transmissions. Haptic feedback systems for people to watch and join in some of the uh, activities. Uh, huge mic microphone array and cellular systems. Michael, I'm going to come back to you. And let's start this discussion about 4K, because there's a number of articles about 4K this, this week. Um, let's start with why 8K and that we're now at 4K. So how so, is Japan going to do this? Okay, so um, as you know, all of these different resolutions are different SMPTE standards, okay, because from the broadcast site. And when people talk about 4K right now, it reminds me of if you went back to Infocom in 2004, 10 years ago, everyone was talking about 720p at that point. And then there were other people that were saying, well, there's 1080p, but wait, George, there's no 1080p content. That's not, you, you, we have to get away from that. 8K is the high uh, resolution versions of all the Ultra HD right now. 4K is the middle resolution, just like 720p was with high definition. And so I think it's fantastic that the, the Olympics is going to be in 8K. That's what Houses of Worship that we work on right now. They're using 8K cameras. 4K is the middle resolution. It's the 720p of today. And that's what's uh, baffling to me as everybody talks about 4K. There was an announcement also this week on uh, DirecTV doing 4K uh, and DISH. Uh, doing 4K, but it's only if you're using Samsung TVs. It goes back to that danger I was uh, describing earlier. You lost me there for a minute. My apologies. So, <laughs> but 4K and 8K. I mean, well, first of all, 8K is not available to us for many, many years, right? That's no. not true. That's not no. true. 8K is available now. There are cameras that you can do 8K. You can take any uh, HDMI 2.0s and do a do-link and do a, a workstation or an Apple device with 8K. Apple is selling iMacs that have uh, 5K built-in displays. So 8K is here now. All right, so what I was trying to do is get to an article to share with everybody. Um, where is it? There it is. So you're going to watch the sausage being made again. Um, so here we have... From CE Pro again, our friends at CE Pro, exploring 4K, is it all about resolution? And I'll get rid of that little uh, thing there. There we go. So uh, video expert Joe Silver explains why 4K is a piece of a puzzle, not the next generation standard bearer for high performance video. Michael, you sent this to me, and we, we had a discussion about it. This is saying, basically, that it's not really about the resolution, but it's about something bigger. I'm going to lean on you to tell me, why is that something bigger? Here they call it the color and uh, the gamut of colors. Is the real part of this that has to hit first before we really see what 4K is going to give us? This article is so spot on. Everyone should read this article. If you, if you haven't heard Joel's uh, talk, Joel Silver, the founder of ISP, uh, if you haven't heard him speak about this, uh, you need to read uh, some of this. But the point is uh, contrast ratio and color gamut space, color in the picture, always will beat resolution. Uh, you can take a high resolution 4K display, put a 1080p display right next to it with a full color gamut space and high contrast ratio. People looking at those images from a normal distancing will always pick the color gamut. They will always, they'll, if you ask them which picture is better, which is a nicer picture, they will always pick the higher contrast ratio and the color gamut. It's 99 out of 100 people will always do that. Resolution, unless it's right up in front of your face, which you're not watching a big screen right up in front of your face like that, is not as important as the color gamut. And unfortunately, in both Cedia and Infocom's uh, trade shows, people don't talk about color. 
They don't talk about transmitting color. All of the video distribution technologies, the most popular ones that are out there, Chroma subsample the colors. They compress the colors. They don't send the true colors. People talk about deep colors, but you can't produce deep color. You're, you've already compressed the color before you even gets to the display. So it's like a, it, this is a huge issue in our market. And to that end, I'll, I'll mention a um, protocol magazine, part of the, uh, it's an imprint of Plaza. Uh, my boss, Josh Weisberg of World Stage, uh, wrote an article about 4K, uh, mostly from the professional staging and event space uh, era, and talks a lot about some of the things you were just saying and how that translates or doesn't translate and how once you get it into a media server, you're already compromising it or at least modifying it to the degree that it's still not what you should be seeing. Uh, it works very well, but there, there's stuff. So I'll leave, leave that link on there as well called Protocol Magazine. He writes a great article about it. Uh, Scott, I'm going to bring this back to you, though, because in this NHK article, the BBC video, they talk about haptic feedback systems. And this is something that I've always loved to talk about. Uh, for those who don't know what haptic means, it's basically a touchscreen that makes a sensory uh, back. So it makes you feel like you've touched a button when there's no button there. Uh, it's just a screen, and it sort of raises up a little bit and makes you feel like you've depressed something. Um, have you been keeping track of Haptic, and do you see an application hopefully soon, or is it just too expensive at the moment? Uh, it is too expensive at the mo at the moment. It is something I am keeping track of, though. And uh, the tactile feedback and haptic um, feedback is extremely important to me as a control systems programmer. Um, it's something that's that's requested. It's something that uh, um, the the people's mind expect. Um, you know, when you want real, real things to happen, you want real things to happen. I love the uh, uh, the day and age of the uh, push button and the and the uh, uh, response you get out of stuff like that. If um, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one, so this is something that that uh, I think is big for our industry, all the way down from a remote situation, um, all the way up to uh, what you could probably perceive as being a uh, um, driving force behind some of the comedy of it, which would be the uh, porn industry or some other. <laughs> <laughs> and we went there, yes. And we went there. Well, I mean, not, not trying to actually slide against that. Um, Hope, haptic, I've been famous for saying I love weighted knobs. And when I worked for a manufacturer, I argued strongly for all the audio devices that have weighted volume knobs. Uh, in the commercial space, they, te they, they tend to really like that frictionless, touch screen that, that don't really care, just light up and make it, that's the only feedback I need. But mm -hmm. do you find that actually when you add a physical feedback, people are much happier or do they really just get annoyed by it? I think it depends on if uh, how how real to life is it. Or, um, you know, we we uh, a lot of the the newer touch panels that we're working with don't have a key click, and we get complaints all the time. You know, where's the key click? I, I hit the screen. It should do something. Um, but you know, if you if you try and fake it and it sounds a little off, I think that's a little more annoying than than if you had nothing there uh, to start with. Um, but for the most part, I think you know someone in a conference room just wants to get their meeting started, and they're they're not thinking too much about about the touch panel at that point. They just they just want they just want the TV on. Well, I wonder, and Michael, I'm going to bring this back to you. I wonder if it's one of those things that we don't notice until we notice it, just like better video or better audio or intelligibility, rather. Building in that sort of physical feedback is something you only miss once you've had it again. I'll give you the example of the IBM M10 keyboard. This is the white keyboard that you see on all those movies that have a hacker that goes clickety-clack-clickety-clack-clickety-clack because it has on it a spring actually in the key, and it has the best feedback ever, you can tell on the fan. It's one of the few things <laughs> I really love. Uh, it's almost fetishistic. Uh, to, to riff with Scott here a little bit. Uh, it's a bit of a fetishistic. As a manufacturer from both sides, you've worked for several manufacturers, do you consider that physical feedback, or is it really a cost analysis versus uh, the slick and the new? Well, it's absolutely a consider. Uh, it's, a, it's a prime point because... Um, the haptic uh, feedback that's done improperly is where it gets annoying. But mm -hmm. if you are doing this correctly, it's absolutely, it's like a human sense where you're pressing on it. That's why those keys work so well. And gamers even, like video gamers, they like those keyboards too because they get that feedback. And it's a natural response that's going back to it. But it does have to be correct. You're right. Hmm. It, it seems to me that's one of those things that I've always missed. I've always liked to have that feedback. I know any of us who grew up doing hi-fi, 
part of the attraction was that Macintosh amp, and it just felt right. And maybe it, maybe a generation doesn't really believe that. I know my kids use their Kindles and swipe away and have no problem with you know there not being some kind of response. Of course, they, they hit the light switch, and it doesn't make a sound. They go, Dad, something's wrong. Because I have, I have a 1901 Colonial, the light switch. Yeah. Um, so they, yeah. they response to that. You know, that's expected. Uh, I, I, I mean... Oh, okay. sorry, can I just jump in real quick? The, I was going to say that, you know, the first thing I do when I get a new phone is I turn all the key clicks off because they annoy the hell out of me. <laughs> but at the same time, I drive a six-speed manual, and, you know, that feeling of a gear shift in your hand is, you know, really just one of life's little pleasures. So I think it's all about context and just how well it works. It's so true. And and actually, uh, Steve Greenblatt from Control Works, uh, Control Concept, sorry, uh, part of AV Nation, wrote an article about the user experience and didn't really talk about that kind of feedback, but he really did emphasize that it has to be individualistic and mm -hmm. what they expect. And it's a great article to read, right on to the Hope's point. Uh, all right, let's get one last article in here if we can today. Uh, Dark Hotel. Okay, this is something, risk assessment from Ars Technica. Dark Hotel uses bogus crypto certificates to snare Wi-Fi connected execs. So what this article goes on to explain is how at hotels they've been basically pinpointing after certain execs and giving them software updates, hardware updates, uh, or bogus ones at least, to say, come on, do this, and they get a key in. For the commercial side, Hope, this is probably a concern for you guys because if they're pinpointing you with your Wi-Fi and other access, how do you combat that with your users who are just so used to being told to just click update and make it happen? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, it's a, if you read the article, it's a great article, and I think it is a, a little concerning from a security standpoint, because even if you do all the right things, I, I think one of the promoted comments at the bottom said, you know, this, this could affect you even if you're working over a VPN, so, you know, um, if you don't have control of the network that you're on, you, you just don't know what's out there, um, what, what could be getting onto your computer, and even people who who are doing the right thing, they're you know not joining an unsecure network. They're using a VPN, could be could be at risk, um, and and we all know most people aren't doing the right thing. They're like, ooh, free Wi-Fi, you know, it's got the it's got the little exclamation point on it, but free Wi-Fi, you know, score. Um, so I, you know, if you don't control the network, you you never know what you never know what's out there. And Scott, you do both again. BYOD, we brought it up a couple times in the show. There's a danger here. That's part of the concern of the IT guys and the convergence IT people. Uh, what do you have to do to make sure that your CEO and executive didn't click on something he wasn't supposed to while he was at the Grand Hyatt uh, and now is compromised and brings it back into the office? And they're going to blame the IT guy because he was controlling the projector when it happened. Or blame sorry, the AV guy. Yeah, this brings back a whole other um, conversation probably about policies and procedures at a company level that, that probably a lot don't have um, and when you're dealing with this kind of a situation. Um, you, you know, you're talking about delving into their into the personal life as well as blending it with their professional life and a lot of these CEOs now have cross-pollinated IT networks across their homes as well. Um, it, the, the idea that you would also not bring that same kind of um, um, security when they're on their road, whether it be a hotel or what have you, uh, doesn't make sense to me. If, they're t if you're going through the precautions at that level, um, why wouldn't you continue it on? Why would you ever jump, have a CEO of your company jump on a, uh, a, a Wi-Fi network? I, it's beyond me. So yeah, that probably comes down to policies and procedures. The scary part about this is the fact that they're actually directly targeted. So you now you have a personal target. You're not just uh, um, out there, you know, scanning to see what what hits. So you're you're talking uh, um, directed um, situation, not any different than a, a let's say a stalker or something to that effect. So I, I think this is a really interesting story. But it brings us up like yeah. uh, residential stuff. Um, you can have residentials now be targeted. Uh, there's something well, years ago called the Bluetooth Sniper, which lets you focus right in on a Bluetooth device and be able to hear what they're saying on their headset or the music they were listening to. Um, but the residential now it has that concern as well. If you're a high-level, high-income um, person, someone may be trying to listen in on you. And how do we as integrators start to learn how to cope with that? 
Uh, Michael, I'm going to throw this to you, actually, since you've dealt with some of the side. How do we start convincing that that value added that is is needed? Well, the most important part is um, these attacks are not obvious. They're usually um, a, a tunneling type attack, meaning I'm not, uh, you know, some people think, well, this is I'm clicking on something and, you know, hey, take a look at this uh, and you're opening up some program and a virus comes out. That's not how most of these spoofs work. Basically, they still allow you to go to the Internet. They still allow you to pass through. But the advanced key logging and the screen scraping that goes on is what they're collecting. So uh, I spoof, uh, right now I'm at a Hilton uh, hotel, and I'm on the Hilton uh, Honors uh, uh, Wi-Fi network. The way that you spoof that is you present what looks like the login page. You let somebody log in. You still take them to the Internet and let them do whatever they want, but you are collecting the data as, as they're going. So in a residential point of view, um, if you really want to protect uh, that, you would have to uh, make sure of what the connections you're doing. You're always going to be doing uh, encrypted or VPN type connections. Um, you're not just connecting on and sending Gmail or so or Google Hangouts. Sorry, no pun intended. But you you know you're not doing because th this is where the targeting comes in from. And uh, a high end. The other thing to tie into that, by the way, George, because I th I like the where the you know, ideas of what you're talking about is when you talk about social media, you have these apps where you are connecting to other people and uh, things like even just the TripAdvisor, the uh, Seat Guru, some of these things like that. What they do is they're looking at your emails for when your itineraries come in. And so now the person not only knows information about you and so forth, but when you are or aren't there. So that even ties into the residential side as well. Because now nobody's in the home, and we know that because your apps told us, and so you know your your house got vandalized at that point. Yeah, it's a uh, it's it's a serious thing, and one of those IT and convergence arguments that absolutely we have to learn it and know it because our clients, mm -hmm. of course, will blame us. I had a client many many years ago that I uh, I found on Twitter when I was working for a manufacturer as their social media person who basically blamed their problems on the Tower of Power and used the manufacturer's name in the beginning of that. Now, she didn't realize, and she knew, that that wasn't all of it. But that's where she laid it. And now for us as AV installers, they're going to see that as our system that was compromised, and we really have to learn to be able to warn them against that and, as Scott said, put procedures in place for them to say you shouldn't be doing this, and if you do, the first thing you do is disconnect and call me. <laughs> Well, and, and, and it means you have to set everything up correctly too. I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of people are are focusing on the AV side of the install, but you got to get your IT set too because you know a, a network is only as secure as its most insecure node. And if you stick a Wi-Fi router on a client's network, you better have it locked down. You better work with their IT department. You better make sure that your system is secure because. You know, our clients trust us, and we need to make sure that we reward that trust by, you know, keeping their networks safe. Hmm. Indeed. Well, I'm going to let you have the last word. That is <laughs> Roth. She is with Verix. Thank you so much. Where else can people you. hear you, uh, see you, and uh, keep track of you? All right. Uh, well, I'm I'm a very infrequent uh, poster on the Twitters, but um, you can. I'm also very Googleable, Hope Roth, um, and I have an album in the Apple iTunes Store or on your streaming uh, media services. It I'll is called Beer and Pie. Oh, that's right, Beer and Pie. I love that. Everyone <laughs> loves beer. Everyone loves love pie. pie. And together, they're <laughs> fabulous. It's a great combination. So there you go on iTunes, Beer and Pie, Hope Roth. Thank you so much. Thank you. Scott Samsel, he is with Greenpoint TDI. Thank you for joining us. Where else can folks keep track of you and your company? Uh, www.greenpointtdi.com. Um, we're on Facebook as well. Uh, um, cool. Offering specials and uh, insights. I like it. Specials. There you go. <laughs> I just I just you up. See? Get a free weighted knob with every purchase. There you go. Right. <laughs> and of course, Michael Braithwaite, he is with Clear One. Michael, where else can they find out about you and Clear One? Yes, sir. Uh, you can go to Clear One, www.clearone.com. We also have a Facebook and a LinkedIn page. Come by, follow us, like us. Come watch our videos about our microphones and our uh, streaming products. So we appreciate it. Yeah, great stuff on those sites, by the way. Great stuff. 
It's one of the resources I have out all the time. Well, guys, I've been your host, George Tucker, from AV Nation. AVNation.tv is a collection of working AV professionals making media for and by us. Uh, please come by avnation.tv and check out our other shows. We have one called Poe, brand new with Anthony Zotti, part of our DIY show, but he covers Ethernet, makes you less afraid of it. He calls it the power over Ethernet. I call it the fear of flying with Ethernet. So he's, uh, he's a good job. We've got the, the Pico Projection guys who do all about the emerging market of Pico Projections. There's EdTech, hosted by Tim Albright, our founder. There's, of course, I said the DIY show. There is a live life show about event staging. There is an AV social show for marketing and techniques for the small market businesses. Probably find that and more at avnation.tv. And if you like this content and the others that you saw, please help us get to ISC. You can go to the Kickstarter page and look up Aviation. We would appreciate any bit you can give us. We may not have coffee mugs like NPR, but we will have. You will have our appreciation. So thank you very much, and thank you for watching AV Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation.